Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about 9-11-2001 after the attacks from a 10-year perspective. I've been putting this off now for the entire run of inappropriate conversations, and particularly for the past year. I've spent a lot of effort, actually, making sure I did not read something that I wanted to read today on this show. What I want to do is focus on 9-11-2001, not specifically from my perspective now, looking back 10 years ago. I think we're going to hear a lot of that in the media over the next few days and weeks. Instead, what I wanted to do was take a look at some of the writing that I did at the time. Now, immediately after what happened on 9-11-2001, I responded to Jerry Falwell's comments, his mistaken, short-sighted, and ignorant comments in my mind. But I waited a whole year after that, really, to begin formulating my thoughts about what I thought was you know, really facing us in the aftermath of the terrorist attacks in New York City, Washington, D.C., and elsewhere. And I think after two years, I had a pretty good outline of what I wanted to say, and I think it was even a year after that before I publicly spoke and shared this writing that's entitled After the Attacks. Now, this is the second time I've done this, uh, sort of patterned like the RSVP show. I'm going to read something that was shared in church, uh, essentially from the pulpit, and I'm not sure whether that's going to, you know, break the tradition of inappropriate conversations, not stepping too far over toward the religion line. But at the time, in particular, the way I would write messages and sermons and witnesses uh, for church would typically end with a prayer. And I think that if this one does, and it looks like it does, just scanning through, I think I'll go ahead and recite that prayer because I think it's in keeping with what I want to do after this. It's in keeping with a different drummer, as a matter of fact. But I also want to you know, speak some commentary into this. So I think I'm going to just read this through, kind of cover this. What did I think after just two or three years uh, from 2001 and those cataclysmic events? And then after the different drummer, maybe come back and talk about whether my opinion has changed significantly. Because this particular work was, again, spoken publicly three years after the attacks. It was published in a church newsletter bulletin sort of thing a couple of years after that, sort of reprised in print, and I've ignored it for the past five years. So a lot of what I'm going to cover today is information that I haven't seen for a while, and it, it may be something that I don't necessarily feel the same way now. I mean, that shouldn't be a surprise. A lot of years have gone by between now and then, and I'll be, you know, frankly impressed, perhaps, definitely surprised if I still feel the same way. I think the best way to approach this is simply to dive in with After the Attacks. Welcome to the second Sunday in September, the Sunday after September 11th. That date is now so etched in our collective memories that you can measure distances against it, all because of what happened in 2001. On the Sunday after September 11th that year, I was speaking here, in church, at the men's service. It was the first time I'd ever given a message in front of a congregation, at least like that, and the theme was, take it personally. 
but it was written weeks before and had nothing to do with the terrorist attacks on New York City, Washington, D.C., and elsewhere. Instead, it was about taking our relationship with God more personally, and I believe that many people were doing just that in response to the events of that week. I'm sure we all remember where we were on September 11, 2001. I was at work. My desk is part of what I call a cube farm, large rows of desks separated by fake walls known as cubicles. When a coworker called out to the entire room about planes and twin towers, I politely asked her to get off the internet and get back to work. Those things are usually hoaxes anyway, I said. She responded with a staggering list of sources all carrying the same story, USA Today, Yahoo News, and more. The biggest question that day, where was God? Well, that has been addressed pretty well over the last two or three years. I won't add to the wonderful sermons and, frankly, emails I've received on that topic. Instead, I have another question. Where have we kept God since 2001? And what does that even mean, kept God? Well, after calling on him to stand beside us, shield us, and lead us, I'm getting the distinct impression that many of our fellow Americans have treated him a bit like a cell phone. We sort of stuck him in our pocket until we need him again in another urgent call for help someday. American Christians assumed three things to be self-evident, to be obvious in the aftermath of 9-11-2001. At the time, I had hoped we were correct to assume these things so boldly, but we may have been wrong. What are they? One, evil exists. Two, people are intrinsically valuable. And three, truth is not relative. Don't get me wrong, I strongly believe that all these statements are true. I have doubts, though, that these truths are as self-evident today as we assumed they would be after the terrorist attacks three years ago. Number one, evil exists. Before 9-11, we only dusted the devil off to say, what? What's the most common expression that uses the word devil? The devil made me do it. That's right. This expression has more to do with casting blame and dodging accountability than with acknowledging that evil exists. You take that phrase out of our vernacular and you are unlikely to find the word devil anywhere outside of certain recipes for eggs or chocolate cake. That fateful Tuesday, though, the presence of evil seemed all too real. We knew we were looking at the face of evil. No one was going to blink twice at the concept that Satan had twisted the ideas of men who wanted to honor their God, instead leading them to kill and destroy. We had little problem seeing the devil for who he is. Where are we now? Well, I'd like to deal again with this at a later time. For now, though, it may be enough to say that the devil has disappeared back into the recipe box. A great many people, Christians and non-Christians, are listening to what I call Satan's first lie. I'm not here. Jesus knew better. Do we know better? Number two, people are intrinsically valuable. Setting evil aside for a moment... Why did we allow the deaths on 9-11 to bother us so much? Say you didn't know any of the victims or their families. That's me. These were all strangers to me. Remove fear. 
it didn't happen to us, and it didn't happen here. Then stabilize the figures. Not 30,000, or 6,000, but more like 3,000 people. That is still a horrific loss of life, but it is less a blur of trailing zeros. Why do we care now, as I'm sure we do? Why did we ever care then, after the fear subsided and the true statistics came in? To ask another way, why would anyone shed a tear over 3,000 crushed ants? If a farmer rolls over an anthill with his tractor on the way to the field, would we all stop for a heartfelt moment of silence? Maybe not. And yet, if we humans share more intrinsically in common with an amoeba than we do with God, then why should we care about 3,000 humans any more than 3,000 ants? Aren't we just proteins and amino acids? Perhaps my largest personal wake-up on 9-11 was about the scientific borders surrounding evolution. Some Christians said 9-11 would mark the death blow to macroevolutionary theories. Our gut-level response to the calamity clearly meant that we viewed humanity as something more complex than just DNA and natural selection. The controversy is still here, though. For a while, we all seemed to feel like a fragile and embattled part of God's creation. And in some ways, it's unfortunate that everything feels back to normal now, where normal means that a lot of people don't think God has anything to do with who they are. After September 11, 2001, there was enough public and state-sponsored acknowledgement of God as our Creator to fill the courts with lawsuits to last decades. Senators and congressmen stood at the Capitol steps to pray and sing religious songs. And nobody sued anybody. Just a year or so later, though, under God became a constitutional crisis for the Pledge of Allegiance. Once again, we are using God as a battleground and pretending that we somehow cannot know the truth. Number three, truth is not relative. Politicians stood on the public square in Washington, D.C. and sang a truth claim. It wasn't an opinion. It wasn't just a tradition. It was a declaration of truth. Here's what I mean. Just answer these questions, at least to yourself, if not aloud. Is America our home? Does our land stretch from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean, including mountains, deserts, and islands? Do we love our country? Our freedom? Did we ask God on that terrible day to intervene, to heal, to protect? And doesn't that obviously presume that God exists? You see, the song God Bless America makes some of the most emphatic truth claims you will ever hear. This is a land called America. There is a creator God, and he acts in our world in such a real and vital way that we can and should call for his blessings and reasonably hope that he will deliver. He will save. Even the song's title is a declarative sentence, like, wait here, or get out of the way. It means, hey, you, God, do this, bless us. Please and thank you are merely implied. The truths I've detailed here were not in dispute. Three years ago, no one was saying, well, that's your truth, that's your opinion. Or, it's just an old song, it doesn't mean anything. Or, I accept the idea of God, out there, somewhere, 
No, it was clear at the time that God was so real, so truthful, and so, well, here, that no one questioned the idea of national prayer. It struck me as spontaneous. Then, as well as now, those prayers acknowledge truth. They concede the power of an almighty God. These prayers confirm that evil exists, that people are inherently valuable, that truth is real, foundational, that we are not the center of the universe. There is something bigger than me, more personal than nature or natural law, and that this God can and will save. Well, three years have passed. It is regrettable, but safe to say that our commitment to these truths is not as strong as it was in 2001. Do our countrymen and women still want God to bless America? Or are we, you know, over all that now, like, whatever? Is it high time that God got off center stage, out of the limelight, and back into the church balcony somewhere where he belongs? Do we want him watching over us and walking beside us and holding us in his gentle yet powerful hands every second of every day? Or just on Sunday. God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her through the night with the light from above. From the mountains to the prairies to the oceans white with foam, God bless America, my home sweet home. Do we mean what we sing? Do we? And was Irving Berlin being sarcastic? I don't think so. I want to leave you with a challenge today. The next time you encounter those who say there is no such thing as truth or that people are just highly evolved animals or that good and evil are relative, gently and compassionately ask them to think about where they were on September 11th, 2001. Say, what did you think when the planes hit the towers in New York? How did you react? How did it make you feel? How did you personally respond on that day and the next, later in the week? What did you do on the following Sunday? Because of your questions, people may once again ask God to bless America like they probably did three years ago. That Sunday in 2001, I stood before this church to say that I take my personal relationship with the God who created me very seriously. I still do. Please join me in prayer, particularly for those who don't. Almighty God, thank you for making us and permitting us to walk in and among your creation. Forgive us for presuming that we don't need you to guide us. Lord, we see the darkness and sometimes fear the evil that is out there, but help us to rely upon you as the light of the world. Work through us to remind us and others of your power, your love, your grace. When this world is night, shine our lives like a light. Make us a beacon for others, many of whom are lost. In the holy name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.
A pastor at a church I attended years before the attacks on 9-11 asked me to consider putting together short, uh, he referred to them as pithy writings that could be used in the church newsletter, things that could be used uh, to fill in blocks of space where perhaps an announcement didn't go on as long as it was supposed to and there would be an open hole or trapped white space on the page. And one of the things I told him, and it's something that I think any dedicated listener of inappropriate conversations knows, is that short is not my strong point. But uh, one of the things I did think about when I was trying to put together ideas is what my inspiration would be. What if I had a regular column? Or what if it was you know, going to be just you know, little blurbs underneath some sort of heading? What would the heading be? And for me, the inspiration is the song, which I just played by the Indigo Girls, Let It Be Me. Now, the track I played was a concert in New York. It was north of New York City, but, you know, closer to ground zero than any other concert footage I could find that featured the song Let It Be Me. Because to me, that was the most important track that I had heard from really, it's maybe my favorite song of the 90s, as a matter of fact. And I think that it was helped in part by the way I reacted to 9-11-2001. But also, uh, I gave some thought to it when it came to this idea of, well, what if I needed to write a a very small column for a church newsletter? And, you know, to me, the inspirational piece was this, uh, sticks and stones, battle zones, a single light bulb on a single thread for the black, sirens wail, history fails, rose-colored glass begins to age and crack, as the politicians shadow box the power ring, and an endless split decision never solve anything. From a neighbor's distant land, I heard the strain of the common man. Let it be me. This is not a fighting song, not a wrong for a wrong. Let it be me. If the world is night, shine my life like a light. And I used that line in the prayer that I shared at the end of that message so many years ago. Here's the way I worded it uh, before that, though. Uh, All the recent emphasis on volunteerism from national politicians and others is both welcome and ironic as in the song let it be me by indigo girls volunteering is a decision that comes from the individual level it is not the kind of act that a political task force is best suited to bolster that said our nation and community face many problems that cannot be solved by referendum only by initiative so to speak let it be me If the world is night, shine my life like a light. Big Brother? No. Survivor? No. The Office? Angela, then what do we talk about? Gaming, sci-fi, fantasy, and geek stuff. Really? Yes. Cool. (laughs) I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And you need to listen to the Anomaly Podcast, where female and fandom converge. Find us online at anomalypodcast.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. Music by Kevin Cloud. So in my mind, there's very little doubt that connecting Indigo Girls as a band, as a folk duo... Uh, with a political and environmental set of causes, I think makes sense from a 9-11 perspective, not just because of who they are and the kind of music that they've written, but also because of this one particular song and how that song impacted me. So Indigo Girls is my different drummer for the week that I wanted to talk about 
you know, 9-11, and looking at 9-11 from a sense of perspective. This is also a good time to cite the Indigo Girls because they're right on the verge now of releasing their, their latest album. I think Beauty Queen's sister, if, if it isn't out already, will be out by the time this is released. And that makes something like 14 or 15 studio releases by the band. Now, one of the things that I like the best about the group is, despite being really solidly within the folk rock tradition, Indigo Girls really only have about three major remakes in their career. They put out album after album where most of the songs on the album were written by them. And you can see a journey, not just of musicianship, but a life journey in the lyrics that they've written along the way. Those three key remakes were Get Together, which was uh, on Strange Fire, their self-released debut. And I'm not 100% sure that the song was originally on the track list for that release. Uh, I don't have that in front of me to know for sure. Romeo and Juliet from Rites of Passage, which is also the CD that has the song Let It Be Me, the studio version of Let It Be Me. And from the soundtrack to the film uh, Philadelphia, the remake of a Crazy Horse song called I Don't Want to Talk About It, perhaps known more popularly in the ballad version sung by Rod Stewart. I Don't Want to Talk About It, How You Broke My Heart. That song. So really, only three major remakes. And it's ironic because the Indigo Girls came as runners-up for Best New Artist in the Grammy Awards after their self-titled Sony Music debut, just called Indigo Girls. And the, the band that they lost to was Millie Vanilli. So there's something a little bit odd about a group that comes out with a couple of acoustic guitarists, both singing, uh, performing by and large their own songs, and to be bumped off the spotlight by something like Millie Vanilli. And if you haven't if you're not familiar with them, look them up. It's, it's quite a story. But I think if you are looking up information about Grammy Award winners from the past, you might find out that it's been probably a good thing for the Indigo Girls that they did not win that award because the Grammy Award for Best New Artist has historically been one that has, uh, has a, it's almost a punchline, truth be known. Looking at my MP3 player right now, I'm carrying 90 songs on a daily basis by the Indigo Girls, and that's going to get longer because they have a new release coming out. I don't have every album by them, but I have either entire albums or songs from you know, more than 10 of these, including entire albums in more than just a few cases. Now, I don't think I can sing along to every single one of the songs that they've performed. I'm not quite that dedicated of a fan. But for me, where they hit the nail on the head, they've hit the nail on the head so well that to me, it's it's not up for negotiation. And again, by and large, with the exception of a Christmas album and a handful of you know folk remakes, they really have been doing their own music. I first heard them probably from Closer to Fine. I imagine I was working in the store. This was part of our new artist listening post. So we would have had an in-store play CD. And I'm sure back then we weren't doing shuffle as much as we would as I you know developed my managerial style in the store. And we probably just put it in and played it. And the first song on that disc is Closer to Fine. But where I really kind of connected with the album was on the song Kid Fears, which was, um, well, let me introduce the band. I, I realize I haven't done that yet. The group is comprised, again, just two artists, of Amy Ray and Emily Salyers. And uh, they met while they were, you know, even in high school, I believe, in Decatur, Georgia. From there, 
developed off and on a friendship that for a while was in separate universities and then back to the same university. And, and even though they don't have um, sexual relationship with each other, they both identify as lesbian and um, have maintained a good professional relationship. And I think that, that those two things are probably related. You know, the less interpersonal you get from what I would call a dating and marital perspective, the more likely you are to not let that interfere with your work or let your work interfere with that. And as goes one relationship, so goes the other. The other thing that's typical about the Indigo Girls is though, is that they tend to write independently of each other. So the song Kid Fears is an Amy Ray song and probably my favorite song by her. The next song on that first CD uh, is an Emily Salyers song. And Prince of Darkness, uh, if it weren't for the song Let It Be Me, would be my favorite by her as well. So they came out the gate very strong. And as I kind of cruise through the list of other recordings by them that I have on my player, things that jump out to me that if, you, if you've if you heard them and can vaguely remember them, songs like uh, Hammer and Nail, One, Two, Three, Three Hits, Galileo, Chicken Man is definitely a favorite of mine. Their recent uh, live remake of Wild Horses. Um, I'm going to skip over a whole bunch of albums and go straight to Wild Horses from the live album Staring Down the Brilliant Dream is another remake. I didn't include live albums. I was only talking about remakes on studio recordings, but their interpretation of the Rolling Stones song from the Stones album, Sticky Fingers, is simply outstanding. Again, understanding where the folk is in folk rock, not just contemporary, um, because they've been a contemporary folk Grammy winner on more than one occasion, but also throughout history. The Indigo Girls have a way of keeping fresh and alive, an art form that I think probably before them, we would have considered to have been quite dusty in some ways between indigo girls and johnny cash what we call folk music and americana style of music today has had an a really unbelievable revival from the 90s to now and again because folk is such a personal style of music it's a storytelling style of music truthfully but if you have anything uh, in your music history that says your know, early Bob Dylan is really wonderful or the blues style of someone like Mississippi John Hurt is significant for you in ways that maybe um, the modern rocking style of blues isn't or the darker Delta style of a Robert Johnson isn't. If you like the storytelling style, Indigo Girls is well worth a listen. And if you uh, listen to nothing else by them, the studio version of the song Let It Be Me is a much better recording than the one I've just played. And uh, the two tracks back-to-back on the self-titled album, Kid Fears and uh, Prince of Darkness, really are what sucked me in to begin with. The other thing I like about the Indigo Girls is their Facebook status. Uh, Sometimes if I have a group, you know, like a, a musician or even a film that I've liked, it can get frustrating if you're constantly getting updates. You know, why do I still need an update from the movie No Country for Old Men? Well, I guess if it's just been released on Blu-ray, that makes sense. Or if there's a, you know, some sort of retrospective showing or a film festival re-release or something. But really, I don't need that many updates from, from musicians and from, uh, from movies unless there's a new release or a new issue of some sort. But the Indigo Girls changed my mind about that. Because they do a very good job of using Facebook as social media to post out what their future concert dates and venues will be and how to get tickets. That's obvious, right? But they do something that I don't see a lot of other bands doing. And that's that on the day or even the night of each concert, they post the set list for that concert. 
literally a you know digital picture of of the chicken scratching in some cases written versions where if they've changed their mind and switched songs they'll cross off one song write the other in the margin or if they decide to to use a different guitar or a different tuning you can see sort of the living breathing document of of the playlist for that evening's show now when you have 14 or more studio albums and when you're capable of calling back to some of the great songs in rock and folk and blues history in your concert performances, it's really hard to accommodate everyone's favorites. If I was going to an Indigo Girls concert tonight, I would be hoping in the crowd to hear Prince of Darkness and Let It Be Me, you know, which now, in retrospect, these are old songs that they'd be digging back into the back catalog. And don't get me wrong, I'd be thrilled if I heard uh, Land of Canaan or Chicken Man, but I really would want to hear Let It Be Me. And what Facebook has shown, a fan like me who is pretty far away from most of the venues that they've performed at lately, they haven't been in my town, is that I can see what other people are experiencing. I can live vicariously through those set lists. And the song Let It Be Me has been popping up in those set lists more and more lately. It's too much for me to think that maybe that's happening because we're close to the 10-year anniversary of the events of 9-11-2001, and people are looking back on those things and recalling how they felt at the time. That's too much to ask. It doesn't describe other people, most likely. It certainly doesn't even describe the band, I wouldn't imagine. But it does describe me. And one of the reasons I'm doing for the Indigo Girls is I did for the Electrics. Ironically, the last time I shared a sermon. Naming an entire band, and not just an individual as a different drummer. I guess my first thought coming off the 10-year retrospective on the writings after the attacks is that, yeah, my heart on my sleeve there. That's a, that's a more emotional delivery than I would normally give, and I probably, on this particular recording, toned it down. Now, part of that is because I haven't looked at this writing in quite some time, uh, maybe five years. But part of it is that I'm, I'm in a different place now than I was then. And I was bemoaning the fact that even after two or three years, people had already began to change their response, to revise the history of how they reacted on September 11th. And I mean, I can remember you know, lots of people having a strong spiritual reaction, if not a religious reaction. You really saw two things. You saw people who were immediately in war mode, you know, wanting revenge, wanting retaliation. Or you saw other people who were literally saying, you know, how could this happen? Either dismissing a God who they felt had abandoned them, that this should never have happened if, if a good and loving and just God was watching over us, or um, turning to God for the first time, maybe in, in a long time. We had better attendance in church the days and weeks after 9-11 than we had on any Sunday that wasn't otherwise an event like Easter or Christmas. And I think a lot of it was people had said, hey, you know what, I've got some questions and I'm looking for answers. Now, a year ago on a podcast called Possible World Theory, I do talk through uh, some of my thoughts about the events of 9-11 and the, the just God problem as some people have described it, and the question of how do we reconcile um, a being that is supposed to have providential control over all histories with a history happening that we uh, find to be reprehensible, evil, in many ways the opposite of God. Well, I'm going to let that 
year-old recording speak for itself. Instead, what I want to do is I want to turn back to these comments that I made uh, before a congregation and see if, you know, some of these things I still have the same sort of sense of or intensity about. So if you'll indulge me, I think it was right to say that we all still remember where we were on 9-11. I've recounted twice now on, you know, podcasts one year apart, my experience of hearing that news in a work environment and dismissing it being an instantaneous denial. Not only did I first think it was a hoax and not want to hear about it, I wasn't eager to hear about it immediately after that either. I mean, this news broke at something like 8.30 in the morning, Eastern Standard Time. The workday was just beginning. And a lot of people immediately left their offices and went to the cafeteria where someone in the human relations department or the public relations department had set up a couple of televisions so people could look at um, news channels like CNN and the local news and, and find out exactly what was going on, what was the latest break, the latest breakthrough information. I believe a lot of my coworkers were actually sitting in front of a television to see a live broadcast of the second plane hitting towers. Um, so I think there was an, there was an impact that I you know spared myself is guess the way I would word it because I didn't choose to catch that information that quickly. I waited all the way till lunch before I caught any real news coverage. And even then, even though I went to lunch in a place where TVs were showing and I could see it, I didn't go to the cafeteria and sit in front of you know big screen TVs and, and soak in the moment. I went with a couple of friends so we could talk about what we were seeing. And the, the image of the television was small and sort of behind the bar, so to speak. And it wasn't necessarily going to stop us from speaking to each other if we wanted to. And these are men that I still work with today and still interact with today on you know things that I find to be challenging and questions that I, I need to ask myself and get an answer for. It's not like 10 years ago, we, we were faced with a, a question that challenged the way we understood the world, and we haven't faced a question like that since. I would be willing to bet that all of us have lost a relative or a friend during that time span that has gone by. So I said, you know, the biggest question of the day was, where was God? But I didn't hear a lot of people getting on the news and, and broadcasting messages that were very quick to denigrate Christians or Jews or Muslims or any other believers, for want of a better word, for their belief in God. The events of 9-11 certainly posed a huge question, but that question was not shoved in my face. And I don't remember seeing that question shoved in anybody's face. The first and only person I saw turn the events of 9-11 into hateful religious speech or hateful anti-religious speech was Jerry Falwell. If he had not you know, exposed his um, lack of faith in God, to be honest with you, his inability to trust the Lord and his willingness to take anything that happens and twist it into a political end. I mean, we've recently seen this this year from Michelle Bachman, um, just related to the hurricane that just, you know, just days ago kind of hit the eastern part of the United States. It's the exact same problem. Now, she said later that she was joking, but let's be honest, it wasn't a very funny joke, was it? You know, we have this image of of radical atheism and uh, in-your-face atheism, but, you know, I, I hate to think that maybe some of those folks are just parroting or imitating the bad example that they've seen from radical in-your-face evangelical Christianity with a political bent. So did the three truths that I decided to cite. I think the first one stands up without any explanation. I don't know anybody in the United States of America who didn't believe there was such a thing as evil on 
or the 12th of September or the 13th or two weeks later or two months later. It took almost two years before anybody was starting to say, well, you know, it wasn't really evil. It was just, you know, human nature, you know, for, for the longest time, for weeks, if not months, there was this sense that yes, it is possible to claim that there is such a thing as evil and that maybe we wouldn't cite the devil. Maybe we wouldn't pin the tail on Satan himself. But the reality was no one had any trouble with the idea that yes, there is evil in the world and we have just seen it. The ironic thing is in the next maybe 10 years, we would see a great deal of our own evil and some of the evil acts that we have performed here ourselves as a nation if fed back into the loop again, where the world may consider us to be just as evil as they are, or that we're the evil and they're not. You got to remember that these people who attacked us in, in September 11, 2001, believed that they were attacking an evil force themselves. So this almost becomes a he said, she said situation. But in the midst of all the finger pointing, there can be no doubt that the overwhelming majority, 95, 97, 98% of the people in this country, if asked that day, is there such a thing as genuine evil? Probably would have said yes. And I think you would have gotten a lot more undecideds than no's if you'd you know, rigged the polling question that particular way. People are intrinsically valuable. Now, I realize this is a fairly controversial point of view. And anyone who's you know, listened to me for very long probably knows that as a political moderate, I don't necessarily have any trouble with the idea that human beings have been on an evolutionary course. My point of view is not a point of view that says that uh, creation means that there is no such thing as natural selection or, or evolutionary development. And I'm not necessarily tied into any concepts of time. So I'm not in the least bit married to any sort of idea of X thousands of years ago or X numbers of days. I believe that all of this is much more complex than that. And that that's distracting the real message of what it means to say that I am here for a reason. And that I'm not going to choose to deny that. Because from my perspective... There is something more going on than just what we experience on a day-to-day -day basis walking through our lives. That if you believe in the Holy Spirit, as I do, then you have a set of data that perhaps people who deny that don't have. But the funny thing is, even people who have a strong evolutionary perspective, even people who have a strong macro-evolutionary perspective, who take it almost to the extent of religion and saying, you know what, this is what I believe and I expect the evidence to catch up with me. And in some cases, the evidence has caught up with them. And in other cases, well, we're still waiting. My point is this, whether you believe in macroevolution or not, whether you believe in only microevolution, whether you deny all sorts of evolution, no matter where you come from, why did we care that anybody we don't personally know died in those attacks? I had a conversation indirectly, sort of online. Uh, I, I put a post on a forum, somebody responded, and we kind of a give and take with, uh, with somebody in Ireland. And we were talking about the ever so complex issue of abortion. And I made the point that from my perspective, it is a killing, that you're dealing with a life, you're taking that life away, you're at least killing the life at the point in which that development has come. And I see that as inherently problematic, that I would like us to do something about it. Now, I would like conservatives and liberals to stop 
you know, complaining to each other and whining and insisting on having their own way all the time, every time, and actually get down to the dirty work of making decisions, sometimes making compromises to get those decisions made and addressing the issues, because I would rather have less killing. Now, I have specific ways of getting there, and they begin with saying, there's absolutely no point in banning the procedure. Banning the procedure will not create less killing, at least not from my perspective, certainly not from a... Uh, perspective of somebody who understands what Jesus meant in the Sermon on the Mount, it will not reduce the evil of abortion. If abortion is, in the mindset of your average Christian, a genuine evil, you have to deal with it in the right way. Well, this individual responded to that by saying, well, you see, you misunderstand me. I don't think human life has any value. I don't even think my parents' life has any value. My life has no value. To me, human, we're just basically a big amoeba. Was the first time I'd heard anybody say that, though. Because most of us, faced with a life or death decision of ourselves or someone we love, or even just some strangers in New York City, have a different response. We attach a significance and importance to humanity and to human life that would seem irrational if our beliefs about the insignificance of humanity and the fact that all of this is just random chance and natural processes, if those things were true, why would anybody care whether Casey Anthony did or did not kill her two-year-old baby? Why would America be up in arms about this? Why would liberals and conservatives and Christians and non-Christians alike be screaming for justice? It wouldn't matter. So I think that's one of the things that came to me and the thing that I will take from that. I think I probably have a, a much more broad-minded perspective about the particular political issues related to how we educate children and some of the other things. I'm not going into evolution at this point in time. It's enough to say for now that even people who have a completely different scientific idea than I might from either end of the political spectrum, most of us, with the possible exception of a friend of mine in Ireland, would at least grant that um, it is a great tragedy when humans are killed unjustly. And finally, truth is not relative. Uh, I don't like the, in my opinion, sort of talk you get. I find that when I'm typing something or writing a letter or even giving a, a response verbally, and I feel the compelling need to finish a sentence with, in my opinion, it probably means that I haven't stated my opinion very well. I haven't stated my opinion well enough for it to be clear that what I'm saying is, well, just an opinion. And I feel the need to qualify it because perhaps I don't feel that what I'm saying can be held by others to be true. But it's amazing what all that singing of God bless America and all those recitations of the Lord's Prayer and the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. It's amazing how sincerely held those were by Republicans and Democrats alike, by liberals and conservatives alike, by the same people who a mere two, three years later would be at each other's throats over issues of whether or not anybody should be allowed to stand on the Capitol steps and sing a religious song or say a prayer. Now, I'll get in on another day to the question of whether it's a good idea for someone to take their belief in these kinds of truths and try to ram them down the throat of the American people or even the people of a particular state by choosing to use the halls of government or the court system as a wedge issue to divide people. Indigo Girls recorded the song, Let It Be Me, at the end of the Bush administration, the first Bush administration in the early 90s. That certainly was when it was written. When they sing on that song about the president having no idea who the masses are, 
Well, they weren't singing about Bill Clinton. They were singing about George H.W. Bush. And 9-11, of course, happening on the watch of George W. Bush, seemed to me that there was an unfortunate but perhaps clear connection, a bookend between those things. And that, you know, again, my reconnecting with the song had a lot to do with how the song played into the coincidence, perhaps, of those two presidents being related to each other and maybe neither one of them having any idea who the masses are. Three years have passed. And it's regrettable, but safe to say that our commitments to some of these truths are not as strong as they were in 2001. I was afraid when I was writing this that at some point people would once again be embarrassed to ask for God to bless America, embarrassed to to join as a non-believer in a secular observance of a prayer, particularly if that prayer was strongly held, passionately held by a believer leading in prayer, as if for a year or so. America decided that we were capable of abiding by one another, that it was okay if somebody who wasn't baptized in my church and believes in all the creeds that I believe in might stand next to me and respectfully bow his head while I pray in something he doesn't believe in at all. And it would be perfectly okay for him to to do the same thing, that you know he's going to humor me, for want of a better word, if I have these beliefs, and I'm going to humor him by not you know forcing him to you know repeat after me that it's all right for a while. And I'm not a big fan. I've spoken to this before. I'm not a big fan of indoctrinational prayer in events like um, graduation ceremonies and ball games and, you know, homeroom starts of the school day and all this other sort of stuff. I don't think that those serve the purpose that a lot of Christians believe they do. And I don't think that they're consistent at all with what Jesus taught us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. However, I also don't see it as the end of the world either. And when we're faced with a real enemy, when we're staring face-to-face with something that most of us would describe as evil, it's interesting how many of us lose a lot of the nonsense that we allow to divide us today. The line between believer and unbeliever. The lines that are all over, crisscrossing the political spectrum. All those sort of disappear because for a while, in the face of tragedy, we weren't Christian versus atheist versus Jew versus Muslim. Or drilling down inside that, we weren't Protestant versus Catholic. We were Americans. We were bigger than all that. And I'm afraid that today, we're not bigger than all that anymore. Dan Carlin, Common Sense. I'm sorry, folks. I know it's a little bit utopian, but, you know, you wonder if these people can't have a statesmanship moment now. When could they have one? I mean, the kind of people we have in D.C. now representing us from both parties would fight during World War II. Fiercely independent. It's common sense. I mean, there is no moment that is so dire and so important and so threatening to our children's future that we won't suspend this sort of politics for? Slapping around the ideas until they're black and blue. Dan Carlin. Common sense. I'm willing to acknowledge that this has been a fairly sappy show. (laughs) Uh, Maybe that was part of the reason that I didn't want to read that sermon beforehand. I didn't want to prepare myself. I wanted to let those words flow as closely as to how they did seven years ago. But before I leave, just as kind of a reminder of kind of the emotions that a lot of us were feeling, my son came back from an elementary school project where he was asked to write a poem about something important. 
And I don't think that everyone was supposed to necessarily write on a theme. It wasn't a current events deal. But for whatever reason, my son chose to write about um, the attacks in New York City and the images that even as a parent, if you tried your best to keep your kids away from those images, there's no way to do that perfectly. Uh, Eventually, the footage is going to seep through because, well, it was quite literally everywhere. Um, Evening news, local news, cable news. There was no getting away from it. But here are the words of somebody much younger, much more innocent than I was in something called the worst attack. Two towers fell down and crashed to the ground. Many people died and even more cried. America still stands strong and tall even after the attack this fall. Red, white, and blue, forever true. These are the words of a child. And I'm wondering if maybe... This is one of those things where we need to look at our response again from that childlike perspective. It's an adult perspective to seek revenge. It's an adult perspective for us to still be now, 10 years later, fighting in a war against something that is abstract and and non-identifiable as quote-unquote terrorism. That's, That's the way adults handle it. Kids handle things a bit more honestly and a bit more openly. And one of the things that I think we miss as adults today that perhaps we would have had as kids and perhaps one of the qualities that some people don't like about believers in the church, that sincere sort of surrender kind of an attitude is that sometimes I think you've got to look at these things from the perspective of a child in order to properly comprehend how we should respond. That poem, short as it is, describes the event, describes the reaction and provides some hope that we as a nation will stand tall anyway. My question is whether we'll stand united. If we become a country that no longer has patience for people who believe or believe otherwise, whether it be in religion, whether it be in military policy, whether it be in the actual definition of history. You see, I may have described some things from my perspective on what happened that September 10 years ago, that may be inconsistent with what someone else experienced. And maybe that would lead people to see, well, you know, this person's a liar. This person can't be trusted. We don't seem to be very good at letting each other have our own personal, unique perspectives anymore. We're so quick to ascribe evil to things that are merely human. And I'm hoping it doesn't take another event like 9-11-2001 to remind us about what evil really looks like and to unite us behind what it means to be Americans who give each other plenty of room to agree to disagree about a much broader range of things than we give ourselves room to disagree over today. Thanks for listening.